0: hello and welcome to living while feminist living while feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs ins and outs and the emotional roller coaster ride of living a feminist life i'm your host feminist writer researcher and author jen thorpe I'm talking to Relebone Riranzu e Africa. Relebone is a Zanin-born, Makanda-bred and Joburg-buttered writer. She describes herself as the awkward girl who brings a book to a party but dreams of opening the dance circle. Relebone won the Blackbird Books Casa Lode Residency in 2019 and was the social media manager for the Ubuntu Book Festival in 2018. She works as a copywriter and proofreader. Her piece in Living While well Feminist is called A Salute to Sisterhood on the Substance of Black Women's Silent Revolution, and it explores the language, solidarity, and the influence of our mothers, friends, and importance of building a community that understands you. In her piece she says, The centre of women's organising, the whole point of it, is to lift a sister up, to create and escape, to further society. In the workplace and in less professional spaces, sisterhood carries us all through. So today I'll be talking with Borne about these topics, about her journey to becoming a feminist and about her writing. Welcome Borne.
1: Thank you, it's good to be here.
0: Yeah, so let's begin by talking about your piece and then we can get to some of your professional endeavours. Uh, you start your piece with the line, what do you call a group of black women? And I wonder why you chose to start with that question and what your answer was.
1: Mm, I I had been hearing over the years a lot about um, how when black women come together, there's bound to be a fight. And it's such a deeply held belief that I couldn't believe that people you know, believe and think this way without actually challenging why it is that they believe this. And so it really bothered me because I, my experience hasn't been that way. And I also do a lot of thinking around, you know, what influences our thinking and the beliefs that we have and whether or not these beliefs are coming from people with a certain agenda. And I really began to see that it's It's not right or fair to say that black women, when they get together, are bound to, you know, be catty, have fights and all of these kinds of things. And it bothered me so much that I thought I need to start with that belief and with challenging that belief.
0: Yeah, because you then go on by talking about your mother, and you quickly subvert the stereotype by talking about her experiences with her female family members and what you call the army of women who raised you. So can you tell me a bit about that group of women and what you learned and witnessed from them? I think the most impressive thing for me
1: was how organized they were able to be and how it was just kind of part of their life, you know? They have kind of networks around them which help them to raise children, help them to find better jobs, help them to find advice, whether it's legal or whatever it is, help them to deal with grief. And I just found that so very comforting and interesting that it's just so seamlessly part of their lives. And on the flip side, I didn't see those kinds of networks for my father or his friends, you know. And in fact, the kinds of friendships that, you know, I saw the men in my life having didn't seem to be organized around anything it was always kind of one-on-one if they were getting together maybe it was to watch a soccer game or you know it but it, it didn't feel like they had that kind of initiative or they didn't have that kind of initiative they didn't have that kind of camaraderie even it just felt like there was something missing and lacking in the way in which they related to one another and as i was growing up i began to notice that about the networks in my own circles you know how us as girls would so easily gravitate towards creating networks for one another helping one another you know but our guy friends wouldn't do the same and so i began to uh examine why that is and to think about the ways in which men relate and if there's really any meaningful ways in doing that. And as I began to grow older, I had like a better, better language rather for it. And so I saw that a lot of it is, is, is influenced by society and a lot of it is is um, is coming from men's understanding that they don't need to do that they don't think that they need to do that because it's really about themselves it's really about how they feel and so I thought it's how who who flipped the switch you know who gave us this idea that these highly organized human beings are actually people who are uh, emotionally immature and don't have the ability to relate to other women and so I thought something is something is wrong here and I really wanted to be able to uh, pay homage to what I had seen growing up and also to my own relationships because I think because of the way that I was raised and what I saw growing up it made it easier for me to relate to uh other people but also to realize that a lot of the time when uh, men want to relate to you, it's not, it, there's always something missing. They they kind of don't have the emotional intelligence to do it or they kind of stumble through it. And uh, it feels, it almost feels foreign to them because they aren't used to doing that. And so I began to realize that we actually are disadvantaging both men and women by, you know, Uh, promoting this lie because it's not necessarily that men don't have the desire to do it it's just that they've they've really bought into this idea of patriarchy so much that they they stop themselves from doing it.
0: It's so interesting because your piece starts by talking about women, but in your answer now, you've talked a lot about men. And in fact, you've talked a lot about masculinity and how it discourages the vulnerability that's necessary for the type of meaningful, supportive networks that you describe your mother and her friends as having. So I'm wondering if you think it is a matter of just that that we've all been gen we've raised to believe that our genders can and can't do certain things, or whether you believe there's sort of physical and real world contemporary barriers to men connecting in a more human way and to women maybe benefiting from some of the professional networking that men seem to do very successfully <laughs> yeah i think it's
1: I think it's really the way that we were socialized and the kind of things that we know have been taught to believe and how deeply entrenched they are I know that a lot of the times when women organize um, we've been doing that as a means of survival because you know first of all we we there's this language in that women are more emotional and so we we tend to you know dive more deeply into that without a fear of being well you're unwomanly which has its own connotations and all of that but a lot of it is really societal pressures about how women should behave and women should act. And I think a lot of these networks also are created for survival. And they're highly organized, because if they aren't, then women will completely fall apart. And in fact, entire societies will fall apart, because in the absence of women creating these networks, um, the men will suffer as well. Because we see that a lot of these networks also help women um, to make better financial decisions, to feed families, and you know all of those things. And Men just don't have that same kind of responsibility, even though they claim that, you know, they are the patriarchs of the home.
0: There is... A pro right to being able to be vulnerable you are able to be supported fully by the people that you choose to be vulnerable with but there's also a benefit for men in the current situation of patriarchy and not being vulnerable and not doing that work because then it becomes women's emotional labor to think about the things like you know how to raise a family better or how to feed their families better so it's it's interesting that this I suppose that gender oppression and gender inequality and the way that patri- patriarchy is structured now has both um, benefits and real disadvantages for men, um, and that women have learned, have been forced to learn to navigate and negotiate those unequal power structures. and um, but one of the things that you also talk about in your piece is the way that language is a pathway to understanding and how empowering it felt for you to discover that there was this language to talk about your experience. Um, and these exactly what you mentioned, things like, you know, economic freedom and negotiating better work contracts or getting better jobs. And that your mother and her friends didn't have those same Linguistic tools, or they didn't have the terminology that we have now to describe them. So, you say about your mum and your piece, she didn't have the language I have access to now that most of us millennials rattle off with ease, uncertainty, self awareness, self care, wellness, spirituality over religion, faith over fear, vulnerability over being the archetypal strong black woman who holds it all together, being over doing, presence over busyness. I could go on. What she knew was survival. But it's very clear to me in reading your writing that your mum is a feminist icon and an inspiration for you. So I'm interested in what you think about the way that the current feminist movement places so much emphasis on jargon and terminology and whether you actually need those terms to be a feminist at all.
1: I think this is something that I've been thinking a lot about because, you know, women like my mother, women like my grandmothers, um, they have shown me a lot about how to be a feminist and I think that perhaps if they had had the wording and the languaging around it or maybe it's not even about the wording and the languaging but if if they had had the kind of spaces where it was okay for a woman to openly question patriarchy then they would have been much better off because you know they just were surviving they were surviving in the apartheid system Um, that was disadvantaging them politically and socially and they were also surviving patriarchy in their own homes and I think they needed those spaces where they could articulate these kinds of things they kind of had them in their networks and you know they were able to to have something that would help them to get on but I think a lack of understanding about the intersectionality of you know all of these things um, affecting them kind of disadvantaged them and I suppose it's also, it's a, it's a classism issue. It's a languaging issue. It's a, I don't know how to call it, but, you know, maybe linguistic, but I think it's not necessarily even the languaging that they needed, but the freedom to know that they can have these conversations and it not be taboo, you know, to release them to kind of have them. And I think it's a, maybe a misinformation to say that, we only need to have these conversations around the frameworks that we've had in English. And, but, you know, my, I was fortunate enough, obviously, that I was able to learn these terms and um at the time at which I was going to university, you know, it was much easier to talk about these things. And then my friends were also conscientious and, you know, the people around me were conscientized. So we kind of were learning and stumbling together and then we had social media. And so I think Our parents grew up in a different time where they did the best that they could. But a lot of what they know is that you don't speak about these things openly. Whereas we come from the generation that didn't speak about those things, that has freedom, you know, supposedly we're Mandela's babies, and yet we still feel oppressed in very real ways. And so we're more likely to have these conversations openly. Uh, So it's still something that I grapple with as well about how do we translate these concepts for people like my grandmother how do you translate these concepts for people who are being raised by their grandmothers you know right now and are still receiving those same kinds of um ideas about taboos and you don't talk about certain things or whatever it is but I don't think that there's no appetite for it I really just think that there needs to be there needs to be room you know conversations that we have that say The the uncomfortability that you have around patriarchy is not you being crazy or you being unwomanly or whatever it is, you know, um, oppressive language people use in order to keep you quiet, but it's really the essence of you asking for freedom, demanding the freedom that you deserve because you're a human being. And because you were born a certain gender and you're perceived to be, you know, a gendered human being who's uh, the way that they are, that has been used to kind of make you quiet and so it's okay to to have these conversations it's okay to fight and demand for more so I think it's yeah it's it's something that that I grapple with still because it's, it, it always seems like feminism and the language that we have is um, of people of a certain class had access to certain resources and we're kind of leaving people behind but I definitely think it's We should focus more on opening up spaces for people to have the conversations freely um, than on, you know, using the language and maybe even translating those languages or finding words in our languages that already kind of translate these, these concepts.
0: I think what you're touching on is the fact that having a term for something is almost like a shorthand it's a quick way for everybody to access a shared experience so what you said there about not feeling like you're mad or you know that there isn't something wrong with you that this is a systemic thing is one of the benefits of you know being able to access this terminology and language but i think what you rightly say as well is that you don't have to have the language to Live the practice, and it can be very exclusionary when the language and terminology around feminism becomes so academic and high level that ordinary people think, you know, this isn't about them or they feel alienated by it. And which is something that you talk about a little bit as well in the way that you reconceptualize power as not necessarily power over which is often allocated to men you know power over people and objects but a contrast with the power of feminist relationships which is more an enabling form of power and and you talk also about the importance of accountability in your female friendships and how the power to be a feminist is partly a power to Keep yourself and others in check through discussion and dialogue. So, I wonder how you balance the two impulses of trying to support your sisterhood and also to hold accountable people when you think their behavior is a little bit problematic. Or do you see them both as part of the same thing?
1: Mm, I think I kind of see them as part of the same thing. I think that the way that the world works right now and part of why it's failing is that we tend to centralize power in one place, in governments, in um, businesses, you know, and then we try to have other structures that are related to that power that are supposedly meant to keep those things accountable, but they are, you know, kind of appendices of of that, that power structure. So in, in corporate environments, we'll have HR, but the HR is paid for by the company and so they're more likely to want to you know protect the company than to protect the um the people who work for the company and i think accountability only works if we have a shared understanding that power must be diffused you know the the the, i think the central argument of accountability is that everybody is important there are no people who are more important than others just because you have a, a position that has more responsibility doesn't necessarily mean that you are more important and it it also directly challenges capitalism you know it's not to say that the cleaning lady is more is less important than the ceo of the company you know there has to be a way in which we diffuse and rethink power and we rethink authority And so I think what women do very well is that we hold each other accountable. We give each other access to intimate parts of our lives. We give each other access to speak about things that, you know, we may even be uncomfortable about in order to say, well, This is not a standard that even you yourself said that you want to live according to. And I think that's what works with accountability. It has to be about what are your values? What are my values? And me holding you accountable to the standards that you yourself said that you want to live by because we're human, we're flawed, we're complex. Sometimes we, you know, we don't even live up to our own standards and accountability works when we say, but you said that you really wanted to do this or you really believe in doing this, but now you're acting completely opposite to that which doesn't mean that there's no room for growth. You know, people can grow in all kinds of ways. But I think there are some values that need to stay and remain the same and remain unchangeable. Um, and so I think if we use the idea of accountability, we have to start to believe first that everybody is equal and everybody is at the same level, you know. Um, And even in family relationships, we will even see this begin to free us a lot if we believe that, Parents are not the boss of children, they are the guardians of children, then we can see that even a continuity can work in even that environment, you know, um, if we say to children, but mom, you said to me that you're never going to force me to do something that I don't like, you know what about consent? What about what's important to me? Then we can begin to teach our parents and teach our children that we have to be consistent in our beliefs. And we also have to teach our children that they have agency, that when they go out into the world, they don't have to take um, behavior that doesn't, you know, that doesn't uh, honor them and that is morally incorrect. And it also um, empowers children, you know, in situations in which they could be in danger to realize that okay, something is wrong here, you know what I mean, so I think accountability really frees everybody into a better world, a better situation, but people are scared of it because they feel like they're going to become weaker, Um, and I think that's maybe something also that needs to be realized as a myth, that seeing another person as the same, um, Valued and valuable human being as you are doesn't make you weaker. It's actually the humane thing to do.
0: I mean, your piece really made me think about something that I used to hear a lot when I was growing up and I don't hear as much now, maybe just because I've chosen to surround myself with more sensible people. But when I was growing up, there was a sense that women like it was a a badge of pride for women to say, you know, I don't really have a lot of girlfriends. I find it easier to make friends with boys or with men. Um, And that was seen as you were one of the cool girls, right? Like you had understood something fundamental, which was that women were not good places to base your friendship because they were untrustworthy or they lied or they gossiped or they would speak behind your back which is fundamentally what the patriarchy wants us to believe about women's friendships because if all women believe that they can be friends with other women and that this would be valuable the patriarchy would be under significant threat because there would be a shared sense of experience discussion point of view. I'm really sad to hear that that is still something that people are saying or that people are encouraging uh, women to believe. I think it's really important to have friendships across the gender spectrum, you know, to try and get a sense of shared humanity. Um, But since, you know, you're a feminist, you were raised by this feminist community of women, has there ever been a time where you felt like feminism didn't meet your needs or you felt disillusioned by that?
1: Hmm, I think the language thing is a big one, but I also think... Um, something that Brittany Cooper speaks a little bit about in her book, Eloquent Rage, about how sometimes as feminists, we don't deal with our own baggage. And so we take it out on other people, you know, and you realize that this person is not actually critiquing, you know, this person's actions. They're actually just finding a way to settle a score from their own baggage. And I think, um, It's not necessarily, I suppose, just a feminist issue. I think it's a worldwide, global issue that people don't examine their own baggage. But I mean, I guess we're talking about it in the feminist sense because we're likely to be a lot more vocal and, you know, methodical in our analysis. And so it seems like it's it's legit, you know, (laughs) but it's really coming from a messed up place because we all have baggage. Um, I mean, it's easy, for instance, for it would be easy for me, for instance, to to come out and say all all black women who are light skinned are trash, you know, just because I grew up a dark skinned child and obviously the world treated me differently about it. But if I really think about and examine my life and the issues that I have, then I won't have the need to immediately attack all all light skinned women, even if a group of them are bringing um these ideas forward. I think it's it's a narrow analysis to just say all oh, light-skinned women are trash. We really have to examine it at different levels and say light-skinned women a lot of them have benefited from colorism. A lot of them um have also been oppressed by you know the same system that I've been oppressed and we've been uh we, we've been divided, you know. And so you begin to have a better and nuanced analysis or understanding of the situation when you realize that I've been deeply hurt about these things. And it's part of what Toni Morrison was saying that racism is visceral, you know, and it's personal. It's deeply personal. Um, in the bluest eye, she was saying that she needed to make uh piccola want to have blue eyes because she needed to show that side of racism, that racism isn't just about not being able to sit in the same on the same bench with white people, it's also about the ideas that we've been fed that deeply affect how we see ourselves and then how we behave and So I think we need to examine the ways in which we've been harmed by patriarchy, we've been harmed by um you know capitalism and all of those things in order to free ourselves from that baggage and to be able to have much better analysis but also much better lives, yeah. So I think where feminism has failed is I wish we focused more on things of the heart. And I guess that's why my piece, I really wanted to, you know, show that feminism heart. I love that you put it in the heart section because I was like, yes, she gets it. <laughs> you know, it's about heart. Feminism can have heart um, and it should, you know, because it's about people first.
0: I wonder what you would say then to, to people who might say, Oh, feminists should put all their differences behind them and unite or be or have some sort of solidarity. Would you would you agree with that argument or would you argue for more nuance?
1: I definitely argue for more nuance. And I think it's an unfair expectation to expect feminists, you know, to be kumbaya because um we're expecting something that we don't expect from any other spaces. We need to realize that, you know, one of one of the central arguments of feminism is that feminists women um and uh uh, trans women and you know everybody who and quip individuals are not just one monolith we're not just you know people who we all think the same we all believe the same things we actually have different experiences that have shaped different ideas you know um and the our views of the world and we should allow these people to be completely themselves and that would mean that, you know, there's no kumbaya. And even in in feminism, there's different sex, there's different understanding. And that's that should be allowed because that's what has, you know, been kept away from us for the longest time. We've been essentialized to this is how you should behave. You know, the boxes, we've been kept in the boxes. And so I think part of our freedom should be that we are freely ourselves, even if that means freely disagreeing. You know, that's important also for feminism to move forward, to understand that, okay, feminism only moves forward if we have different kinds of thinkings and we then, you know, challenge one another and um, have these conversations that are uncomfortable and that are open. Um, So I wouldn't say let's be Kumbaya, I would say let's be completely complex and human as we are.
0: I suppose that links to what you were arguing for in your piece, which was around accountability and the need to be accountable to your own baggage. Be accountable to your past, be accountable to the problematic beliefs that you've been raised with or have breathed in or have taken on board and to be accountable to doing better once you know better in some way. So you studied journalism and it's very clear from the writing in your essay that this is obviously not your first piece of writing. Tell me about your writing residency, Blackbird Books, and what you worked on there and what it's meant for you as a writer.
1: Oh, it was such a beautiful thing. Um, I think I walked away from that. So thankful that I know feminist women who live their politics. Um, So one of the people who actually found out is a a queer woman called Natalia. And basically she said, you know, I have all this space and I want to use it for good. You know, she's living in a kind of a, a bigger house. And she said, well, I have all these rooms that I'm not using. How can I use them to benefit other women? And she said, okay, let me, you know, have a writer's residency where creatives can come and work on their work because I know that a lot of, um, women don't have the space to write freely because they're thinking about money. They don't have the space to write freely because they have, you know, there's just a lot of responsibility that is on them. And it's so beneficial to have, even if it's just a month to, you know, formulate your ideas and do all of the things that you would love to do. So I was fortunate in that I sent in a um, sample of my writing. I actually sent in, um, and this was before uh, the, the work had been published when we were still in, early edits I think uh the the living Well feminist essay <laughs> so I actually sent that in as my as my um as my sample because I think it was it kind of encapsulated the the way that I wanted to write my book I wanted to be you know essay essay like but also kind of conversational and relatable to most people so I'm glad that I did that and I sent in an outline and so the work that I was able to do there is. Um, begin a uh, book of essays around depression. And, you know, I've dealt with depression, I'm living with depression, I'm surviving depression, however you want to put it. And it's so important for me that we have these conversations, especially in the Black community, but also in the South African community at large. I don't think we really have these conversations enough I mean we're beginning to have them which is great but I think we need to have them more it needs to be the kind of conversation that is as common and as second nature to us as the conversation about racism you know we're a highly racialized country so we're used to having conversations about racism even though in some spaces it's still kind of to be but everybody has an awareness of race and has an opinion on it and my dream and my goal is that one day we will have that same kind of awareness and ease when we're speaking about depression because it's something that deeply affects us Um, even if you don't or have not lived with depression you probably know somebody who has or you probably know somebody who's wanted to commit suicide or who has you know um, the issue is so complex and so broad that it's impossible not to and so I began the book and it's kind of relating to my own story actually very (laughs) heavily relating to my own story but I'm also trying to show through using personal story that you know this is an issue that affects us all and it can affect any person and you know you, you probably are somebody who's depressed or you probably have been depressed yourself but just didn't know it because in your mind depression is this drastic thing Um, where people walk around, you know, without, with like half of their clothes not on, or somebody who's trying to kill themselves every second day or whatever, you know, there's like these wild things that people believe about depression that are inaccurate. And so I wanted to kind of pull, peel back the layers and say, this is something that's completely normal and completely rife. And we we just need to have the conversation and free more people to have the conversation. Um, so yeah, I'm still writing that book. Actually, October will be 1 year since I started to write that book. And um it's been it's been a very interesting experience because you know, I didn't understand I, I think when I started to write the book. I mean, I'm, I've been a writer I've, and I've written a lot of personal essays. I've also done, you know, like a bit of journalism. And so some of it has very been like clean cut and, you know, this is the story. Here we go. And some of it has been a little bit up on myself, but I, I hadn't um delved as deep as I am right now. And so I didn't realize just how much it would affect me emotionally. And that was perhaps the biggest challenge, just how deeply it would affect me emotionally. Um, but it's been also a very healing experience. I say to my friends when they're asking, how, how's the book going? How are you feeling? You know, because they know to check on me and, you know, we just have that, that relationship of let's check on each other. Let's, you know, how are you doing? You know? Um, and so they'll ask me, so how's the book going? You know, what, all of that stuff. And I'll say, I didn't understand just how self triggering a process it would be, um, but also deeply healing. And, um, it's also enabled me to have difficult conversations with, my mother and my family about some of the trauma that we've experienced in our lives and about my own depression, and it hasn't been easy. it's really not um, black you know we we argue on Twitter all the time, We're not argue, but we joke on Twitter all the time about how black parents see depression as lone- as not loneliness as laziness, and they don't really understand it, and so they'll always joke about it um, but you know it's really it's really been beneficial to me. It's really been helpful, really been healing, but also very difficult. I honestly think it's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life.
0: It sounds like a very brave project to start on, and I think it when you publish it and it becomes very world famous, it will. Help other people because I think seeing yourself in someone else's writing is incredibly healing, and it can encourage people to write themselves and to reflect on their own journey. So it's really a valuable thing that you've started working on. And, and you know, I just want to say thank you in advance <laughs> on behalf of people who who are going to benefit from it. And and I suppose you know to take it easy on yourself. Writing any book is really a lot of work. <laughs> I think that's underplayed in the movie. <laughs> it really is a a and when you publish a book, it feels like you're sort of standing naked in public and everyone is looking at your innermost thoughts. Um, but it is it's so important for that type of work to get out there and I can't wait to read it when it's finished. Congratulations for starting. Thank you so much. It really is
1: encouraging to hear those kinds of things because, you know, um, doubt can sometimes creep in and you can feel like, who am I to even write about this? I'm just living with depression. I'm not a doctor. I don't know anything. <laughs> But, um, yeah, it's it's really helping me. And I, I really do hope that it will help other people as well.
0: In our um, CNA launch, you also mentioned something around that narrative of struggling with imposter syndrome, which I think many listeners will have experienced at one time or another, and something that I struggle with myself, I think a lot of writers struggle with. Are there particular times when that inner critic comes out? And how do you tell it to bugger off? <laughs>
1: Mm, mm, all the time all the time um I think before I start a project or start an essay or start a chapter on something that critic will come out and say you know you're not good at this what are you doing your thoughts aren't valid and all of that stuff and at that time then I bug my friends who are either writers or who either know how to speak directly to that inner critic in me and tell it to shut up um because I think we rely too much on ourselves to you know get over the mental baggage and sometimes you're having that conversation with yourself because you're struggling within yourself to have the resources to say okay this is a liar and it's okay to ask other people or to just confide in other people and say oh my gosh I feel so stupid why did I take this on and then my friends immediately say you can do it, okay, tell me what you need to do, you know, and sometimes the help that they give is very practical down to the, let's bounce ideas off of each other, and sometimes it's really just, okay, what do you need, do you need a cup of tea, do you need me to send food to you, do you need a FaceTime call, um, affirmations, whatever it is, so I'm, I'm very reliant on the people around me to be voices of reason, um, but sometimes I'll also go back into my bag of of goodies you know bag of these are the things that you did that were really good remember the time that you did that remember the time that you did something else that was great and um someone recently said to me you have to you have to work on and stop um imposter syndrome before it even happens you know a lot of the time we have imposter syndrome because we don't celebrate the wins that we have enough and so our minds don't even register that this is an amazing thing that you do or that you do amazing things because We don't celebrate them enough. So each time something amazing happens, I milk it for everything it's worth because I want to remind my mind, you know, my soul that there are good things that happen in my life that are worth celebrating because I did them, not because they kind of fell into my lap, but because I did the hard work of doing them. And so the more that I do that, I think is the less that I will be inclined to believe um, the imposter syndrome. And, you know, when I'm struggling to write or I'm stuck or I'm experiencing writer's block, then I'll just say, OK, let's let's not do this right now. Let's wait 30 minutes and then just go into it, you know. Um, so I think it it's really about trying to convince yourself and reminding yourself that you you've been doing this. You know, you've been doing this. <laughs> I, I wish I remembered her name because I, I do love to credit people. But um, a TikTok user said, if you want to believe what imposter syndrome is telling you that you're an imposter and you're a scam artist then you should be proud of yourself for for scamming people so good into believing that you can do this job so why don't you just continue to scam them into doing the work that you need to do (laughs) so if you're good for nothing else you're good for the fact that you scammed them pretty good you're a pretty good con artist so you see you're not good for nothing (laughs) And I think that was a very, you know, interesting and funny way to look at something. But it kind of made me think that is so true. There are there's no part of imposter syndrome that is correct. You know, if you look at it in any way, you still come out the winner. So, yeah, I think that's also another thing to examine imposter syndrome and have a conversation with it and saying what actually are your points? Okay, but all your points
0: lead to me being right and lead to me being pretty badass anyway. So. Well, I mean, it's directly linked to patriarchy, right, that women are supposed to feel like imposters. If we feel like we're imposters all the time, then we be less likely to keep on doing the good stuff that we've done before. And um, so it really is an act of feminism and bravery to claim your wins and to take credit where credit is due, not only to give credit where credit is due. So I, I think it's very I mean, it's inherently feminist to celebrate your victories in this strange and difficult world. And um, so that's really nice advice on that.
1: Because a lot of the time we tell women, don't make noise about your achievements because it's crass and women do that and I think making noise about it and boasting about it we should do that more because men do it all the time even for things that are mediocre (laughs) so we should teach women indeed absolutely to even make noise about these things and to self-promote as much as they can um because it helps other women it helps other feminists to you know realize that actually it's it's pretty cool to do that and it's all right and it's normal and it's necessary um yeah
0: There's a podcast that I really love to listen to called the how to fail podcast. And every week she interviews people about their failures and they have to submit three failures before the podcast. And then they like talk about all the things that they know and are professional and you know, why they're fancy enough to be on the podcast in the first place. It's centered around the fact that everybody makes mistakes and these strange, sometimes the strangest little failures can knock you very deeply. And I think part of that, um, fighting with your imposter is to say okay you made a mistake and so and so what let me just try again Um I know there's another writer I think it might be Elizabeth Gilbert who says uh, she when she starts writing she literally imagines she's driving in a car and she invites the in the critic to come along with her but she just says you know you can come but you're not driving I'm driving right now you can sit in the passenger seat I, I see you but I'm just going to carry on driving if it's all right with you right now which I love that analogy because it is it's so easy to talk yourself out of doing something creative because you think you won't be good enough. And I don't know why we care if we're good enough, why it isn't just valuable enough to do something creative in and for itself. I read an interview excerpt um with you online like a stalker <laughs> from last year, where you were talking with several other people about Siti Dangaremba's book, Nervous Conditions. And in the interview you said, Before this, all the books that I had access to were mostly peopled with whites, white people doing white things. I'd never read a book that looked so like my own life, a black girl from a financially difficult situation trying to better herself. I identified with Tambu's sense of alienation from her old world. She was changing, and it was not, and yet it's the only world she supposedly belonged to, and the alienation she felt from her new world, her cousin's world, because she was too unlike it in many ways. As a black woman, it validated me and these struggles and that others too could be the subject of literature. I felt seen, truly. It was the first time anyone had articulated the complex thoughts I didn't have a language for, but which I battled through every day. And um, I've just been building up a list of South African women's novels for the past five years. And when it comes to mainstream and traditional publishers, it still is mostly white women who are being published. And I wonder, for you, anything has changed since you did this interview and whether there are any books you'd recommend to listeners that like nervous conditions are providing, you know, windows into different people's lives or allow you to see yourself in fiction. So
1: I started a couple of years ago um, an Instagram or a kind of blog where I just read Black writers, you know, and Black authors. And so I've actively been trying to find more literature by uh, Black writers and Black female writers, especially and um to be honest it's hard to find books but well not hard but it almost you would almost think that black women are not writing enough in South Africa because they're not getting as published as you know black men for instance or um white women as you say um but definitely I've definitely f- um looked and found myself in more books and you know kind of uh created a a a view and a perspective of myself that starts with them and doesn't start with the white literature that I read growing up um and I think nervous conditions was so will always be so important for me because I read it at a time when I was uh, I don't remember how old I was but you know at a time when I was looking for that and I needed it and it was kind of like it felt like a little middle miracle in a way um, to, re- to, to read that book, because it wasn't prescribed in any of the books that I was reading at school, um, but I was fortunate enough, I think, to find a copy, must have been the library, uh, and it's, it, it really changed the way that I saw myself, because Dambu was living a life that was very much like, you know, mine, and an experience that was so common for uh, a lot of us, people like my friends and myself, and so I thought, oh, my gosh, it doesn't have to just be, you know, um, white children living their white lives and going on about their white people's business and, you know, in white spaces. But it can be about someone as ordinary as me. And it fills an entire book. I was almost scandalized, you know, that an entire book could be filled with the thoughts in the inner life of a young black woman. Um, and it it completely changed me, complete, it changed me as a writer, it changed me as a girl, it changed, it just changed everything, and in fact, till this day, I still um, recommend it so highly, like a friend of mine was saying that he is starting a group, uh, like a reading club for uh, young boys, and he wants to kind of, you know, change their perspectives around, Uh, patriarchy and feminism and so he was asking please recommend stuff we're going to read living while feminist but we also need other stuff what do you recommend you know and one of the books that I recommended was not just nonfiction. I said they have to read Nervous Conditions you know it's such a great and excellent way for people to get into the life of the inner life of uh, a young black woman and 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 rethink all that they have known and understood but you know, since then, I've, I've read a lot of the classics. I've read a lot of Bessie Head.
0: Nervous Conditions was actually a set work for me at my high school. And it's so interesting to hear, you know, how you experienced it. And I, I can't remember really what we sort of tackled in it thematically other than eating disorders, which is obviously something they were very concerned that we were going to have at a boarding school for girls. And um, I do remember feeling like this was something that I hadn't read before and the things that I was normally reading or that were accessible in the library. Um, and I think we're really lucky in South Africa now that there are so many bookstagrammers and book bloggers and people who are exposing a wider range of literature. But I heard an interesting thought the other day on a podcast, which I wonder if you have an opinion on this. But they were saying so many of the African writers who get a lot of publicity and acclaim globally are writers who actually don't live in Africa anymore, who have been diasporic writers or who have been, you know, second generation. And so the stories that we learn about Africa are told by people who no longer live here. And so that's not, you know, accurate either. Um, I wonder if you think that that's the case or if you think that there's a bit more of a balance in the South African context
1: uh in the south african context it's definitely more of a balance um but you know i think retailers the big retailers are still more likely to put um those African writers who are living internationally on their shelves. And so you can even walk into a, I won't say names, but you can walk into a certain bookstore and be looking for a very common name in South African literature that's, I mean, widely read and not find it because you'll either find all the other international peeps who are there who are great writers, but, you know, who don't always speak to your experience, even though you can identify with them. And I don't know if you remember, but a couple of years ago, there was a big, you know it it was a big like Jim comes to Joburg but it was the international version sort of Jim goes to America you know Um, and there was a lot of that like transnational someone going to America writing someone African going to America writing and it was like a lot of proliferation of that and a lot of us kind of got fatigued with it because we kind of thought these these stories and these books can only be told if the person is also in some way centering their experience in America and it's kind of disheartening because we we need stories that are just about Africa living in Africa and the African experience from African writers still living in Africa still grappling with the conditions of our continent um, right now and because I mean that gives you a completely different perspective than um, somebody who has now uh left Nigeria or left South Africa or left Namibia or Botswana or Zimbabwe and is completely living in the United States uh so yeah I do think we need more we need more of that and not just to populate the shelves with people who are established writers but also take chances on the newer writers and the smaller publishing prints also
0: do you think that then this is probably a controversial question do you do you think then that there's certain stories that people shouldn't be allowed to tell?
1: Mm, this is a, a big conversation on Instagram, on Bookstagram, as we call it, about own voices. Um I don't know if you've if you follow the the controversy around um American dirt, for instance, and how, you know, a lot of the Latinx writers were just like she has no right to tell the story. There's so many holes in the story. There's so many things that are wrong with this and you know, obviously I'm not Latina, so I I could only also sit back and read, but there was a lot of things that they were bringing up that really rang true to me, and I think there are some stories that are so deeply personal that only certain people can tell them, especially if the story is, you know, um, coming from a a group that is still incredibly marginalized, um, because, there are a lot of Latin, Latinx writers who haven't received the kind of advances that uh, the American Dirt writer did get, you know, and that's kind of sad that somebody whose experience is totally out of this, who just sat in her room one day and thought, I should write a story about this, you know, has received such a big budget, and big backing, uh, backing from the Big Five. Uh, and there are people whose voices are more authentic than hers who haven't received the same kind of fanfare and money and. Backing you know, and that just goes again to to reinforce the problems that are there in publishing but also in society that other people's stories who don't come from that community are more um taken as the anthropological you know, be end and an end all over the stories that actually come from there. So I think there's a lot, there's a lot of good points being raised by the Own Voices community and people who believe in Own Voices. Um, but I do worry about, not worry, I do wonder. Um, because for instance, I may be a feminist writer, but I'm a Black cishead woman, you know, um, but I eventually one day want to write. Uh, fiction in fact I'd always in, in, imagine myself a fiction writer funny enough before I started you know uh, writing this non-fiction book and I always wondered that you know how do I write um, queer women into my work without you know stepping on anybody's toes or without actually being problematic um because i want to write stories that are real to life but i'm not i'm not a queer writer so does that mean that i shouldn't as someone who's not a queer writer put queer uh characters in my book but that wouldn't be true to my experience there are queer people in my life so what do i do now <laughs> you know so it just becomes um something that i think we should be sensitive about and that we should have almost discernment but i don't know uh just how well we can do it but I think that the easiest way would be to consult with the community in which you are writing about, um, to have, I think they're called sensibility readers, I forget now. Uh, and also to check our privilege, you know, as a Black suicide woman. I've never walked down the street afraid that I'd be killed for my sexuality, sexuality. I've walked down the street afraid that I'd be killed, but you know, there's a different layer to it for women who are lesbians or trans or whatever it is because they are viewed in a very certain way by patriarchy and as an immediate threat to the point where they'll be killed for the fact of being lesbian, you understand? So I have to take all of these things into consideration and um, be sensitive and be willing to learn. Um, so they are, I don't know, so I'm I'm still kind of like 50-50 on it. I'm very, I'm very much in support of own voices and saying that I can't write, you know, a book about uh, Latin... Latinx people if I'm not Latina because I I know nothing about that everything that I will know will be what I have researched but at the same time I completely don't want to exclude if I want to write a book about the friendship of women I completely don't want to exclude queer women from that because that would be alienating so yeah you're right it's controversial (laughs) but I think we need to we need to the most important things that we need to do when we consider this is to check our privilege. I think that would be a good place to start.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, it's not a question that either of us is going to be able to answer in one podcast, (laughs) one conversation, but it is, and it is something that I think about a lot as a fiction and a nonfiction writer of, you know, are you able to tell a story at all? If we, is it more helpful to box people into certain appropriate writing categories that they can write about it. So say for, you know, to take this to extreme, say I'm a white cis-head woman, I'm only allowed to write white cis-head women's, that is going to be the most boring book. Like, there's going to be people who's going to read my book. So, yeah, I mean, this is facetious, but yeah, it's a complicated question. I I don't think we have to answer it right now. But it's just something that I was thinking about. So, more on books. Um, I have three last questions that I'm asking everyone who comes on the podcast. Uh, the first is, do you have a book or books that have inspired your feminism?
1: I de- I, I guess definitely Nervous Condition oh, everything that Toni Morrison has written, <laughs> but especially The Bluest Eye, I think the first time that I read that, I was repelled, and I actually re- remember writing in my in my um a diary at the time, because I've kept a diary for so long, I actually remember writing, never gonna read books by this woman because she's this, that, and the other, you know, but I kept going back, like some kind of voodoo, I just kept going back, because there was something about it that rang true to me, and that I understood that this book is challenging me, and so I read it over and over again, and I realized that actually what's happening is that this book is challenging things in me that you know i haven't wanted to face or things in me that have been difficult to look at and since then i've been hooked so i think um it's it's actually very much you know it 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 actually influenced my feminist ethos that we need to challenge ourselves and the things that we hold as deep, deep beliefs and examine are these true? Where do they come from? Who told me that? Is it true to what I as a person really want to keep believing? Is that a value that I can stand by forever? You know, um, so definitely nervous conditions and the bluest eye. Uh, and I think, I think a question of power, just because of how expertly uh, Bessie Head looked into, you know, mental illness, but also um being a woman in in a society that completely misunderstands you um and that was you know a big lesson in 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 how the patriarchy views you and how there's different layers to every woman's struggle
0: and um, the second to last question that i have is do you have a quote that you live by um i think it's it's it's
1: it's perhaps uh Lucille Clifton's poem from Lucille Clifton's poem uh won't you celebrate with me and there's a part where she says, come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. And I think that's that's the quote of my life because I feel like, you know, every day there are things that try to kill us, to shut us up, and yet we make it through. And that deserves celebration. It deserves fanfare. But um, another one that I really, really love is um, from Toni Morrison's Beloved, uh, when, um, Paul D says to Setha, you, your best thing, you are, and I have it tattooed on my arm, because I just feel that it's so powerful, and it actually greatly encapsulates all of Toni Morrison's work, you know, her saying to us, especially as Black women, that you are your best thing, um, and so I, I live by those two, that I deserve to celebrate my existence, and my thoughts and what I have to give to the world. And also I am my best thing. I bring my whole self to the table and that's the best that I can bring. And everybody else should know it and
0: celebrate that. That's beautiful. And the final question to end of our chat today is, what is your advice for other feminists on their journeys?
1: Mm, trust your thoughts, trust your intuition. Your intuition is very much important when you are you know, thinking and feeling um, I think the inner lives of women have been so misjudged, the inner lives of feminists have been so misjudged and um, doubted that we tend to want to keep quiet and not voice out what we're thinking or feeling. And that is so important uh, in feminism, to trust what you are thinking and what you are feeling and to explore that because there's a whole world there that the rest of the world can benefit from you know your inner life your intuition all of that is your own and is probably different from the next person so what you have to offer to the world is absolutely valuable but also be in conversation with other feminists and with other people because we're not an island especially in this movement a lot of what we think um, has been uh, spoken about by other feminists but also a lot of what we think can benefit from hearing what other feminists have thought it can make our thoughts grow richer and wider and deeper so trust your thoughts and also engage with the thoughts of others
0: thank you so much for coming on today to talk to me and to share your wisdom and your vulnerability and your honesty about your writing and your struggles i appreciate it so much and i've really enjoyed chatting with you
1: thank you i i was nervous but i really enjoyed this as well you made me feel at ease and i hope that you know your listeners will also have many little light bulbs and like you know thoughts going in their mind about things that they want to think more about also
0: thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of living while feminist with me jen thorpe please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences take care of yourselves